Ladies, gents, and germaphobes, I want to welcome you to season four of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. In 2019, I wrote a book to exercise the demons I'd picked up over a long decade of owning, brewing, and operating a brewery in Texas with my beautiful wife. That book is the same name as this podcast, and you really should pick it up on Amazon. Even brewers and bartenders can afford 18 bucks. What you're about to put in your ears is the only podcast that tells the truth in craft beer. I interview dead and dying breweries to learn what went wrong. I talk with breweries I think have a unique position in the marketplace to find out what they did right. I talk to distributors because they're a big part of the worst part of this industry. And I'm even sticking a microphone in the faces of cider, spirits, and mead makers. And yes, I do talk a lot of shit and piss off more than a few people in this industry. But I'm happy to be the crap beer pariah, trademark, because I'm here for one reason and one reason only, to make you better in your careers. My guests and I want happiness and financial success for each of you. We want you to avoid the mistakes we made. And since no one else has the stones to share how to do that with you, it has fallen to us. And trust me, we are up to the task. So sit back, listen in, and let us teach you how not to start a damn brewery. I mean, even from the time we signed in at least 2017 to we opened in 2018, the industry just changed twice over already, you know? Back in 2013, a lonely frog thought he'd be cute, so he hitched a ride on a NASA rocket. It may have been the most excitement that amphibian ever saw in his life, but we're pretty sure that the rocket frog died. Years later, twin brothers Richard and David Hartogs named their cool brewing project after that poor dead frog. I actually forgot to ask them why, but I guess now it doesn't really matter. You see guys, this is one of those stories the craft beer industry thinks doesn't happen. One of the brothers went to craft beer school, the other worked on the front lines of distribution. They methodically and patiently worked on opening for years. And when they finally did, they won GABF awards and they managed to build a loyal following of both distro accounts and fans. And still, the business model couldn't sustain itself. So I caught up with Richard about two weeks after they closed the doors, and at the time of this interview, they were still entertaining offers to sell their equipment and their assets. Hopefully they've done that by now. It's a great story of doing it right and still ending up out of business. So listen in, there's a lot to learn here. All right, Richard, I wanna thank you for talking, thanks for sharing, and thanks, most of all, for giving a purely calculated and deeply considered fuck about helping all of my guests be better in their careers today. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So. I'm uniquely interested in, in what you have to offer. I think there's some very cool stuff about your story and what happened. Before we get too far into it, I do, I do want to ask, just so we're on the same page, how long ago did you actually shut the doors? We shut the doors two weeks ago tomorrow. Okay, so super fresh. But before we get too far into that story, uh, your commentary about the booze biz overall, I just kind of want to know who you are. Like, Share where you're from, where'd you go to school, what's your favorite hobby, uh, you don't need to tell me which Transformer you played with as a kid, but uh, you know, who, who are you? So, uh, yeah, I'm Richard Hartog. My twin brother and I started Rocket Frog Brewing Company and co-owned it together. We are from outside of Washington, D.C., in, in Arlington, so just a few miles away. So we consider ourselves more more D.C. natives than Virginia, if you will. Our summers, we grew up going to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, where our parents have a house, and Dogfish Head is there. We were drinking at the bar before we were 21. So you had Dogfish Head beer as a small brew pub before you were 21. That's, there's not a lot of people in the industry that I've talked to that had that experience. They built a new one five, six years ago. So we won that bar in an auction, and we used a six-foot section in the Rocket Frog bar, actually. Oh, really? That's cool. <laughs> yeah, so it's a cool thing. Um, but also growing, growing up around the beach, you know, we became surfers and for the last 23 years, even though we don't get to surf that much these days, it's kind of been kind of a lifestyle for us and being around the ocean and water and water conservation minded. 
yeah. basically so we can for our enjoyment. So beer is a natural fit, <laughs> I think. And then our oldest brother moved to San Diego in 2000. Oh, really? And yeah. So, you know, visiting up to two twice a year from then, Dogfish Head wasn't really, it wasn't seen as a craft beer movement. Mm-hmm. Just, okay, it's a little restaurant with a brewery, you know. You didn't think of anything. And then you go to San Diego, like, holy shit, this is ridiculous. Yeah, all the way across the country. Yeah, yeah. so it had been ingrained in us. So, yeah, so we had different career paths. I was in television. David worked for works for nonprofits and stuff. And we were hobbyists in the craft beer world, too. We had a blind review talk show called Better Beer Authority. We did behind-the-scenes things for a while. It was a YouTube thing. Right. Back when you could have like nine minute videos and people didn't lose attention. So you would, uh, somebody would set up the beers in blind and you'd taste them and then just, if I was doing that, I would, not, no surprise to anyone, I would be focused on talking shit about the beers, but what were you guys focused well, on? Well, that happens sometimes. So my brother's college room, he ended up being a producer for Larry King Live. Hmm. And that guy moved to Columbus, Ohio and he built like a studio in his basement. So if you see some of the early shows, like I'm behind the scenes, I was kind of the travel writer at first. It was basically a host and, pa- and three panelists, and you would drink the beers off screen without knowing what they were, and then you would rate them, and it kind of morphed into a bond thing. It really gave an honest assessment, but I think one thing, they really, the, guy, the guys in Ohio really shit on uh, Arrogant Bastard really so much, and Greg Cook kind of shit on us, and so the one guy, like he saw Greg was on a book tour coming through Columbus, where I think Greg is actually from. And say, hey, why don't you come to the studio? So he did. And that kind of launched, and he did, and they had a good, candid conversation and became friendly. And that kind of brought the show, you know, some credibility. And the blind taste tests were honest reviews, too. Yeah. Which really, I think, the brewers themselves, like, the fans, would be like, what the fuck's wrong with you? We're like, hey, this is us drinking it. And that's the kind of feedback that brewers, as owning a brewer, a lot of people don't tell you the truth. Oh, this is good. You know, they, they got to hear it. So then we got to interview Sam at Dogfish Head. That was crazy. And then from there, we went to Grand Rapids and interviewed the founders back in 2012. That's where my brother and I we were drinking behind the camera. He's like, hey, let's open a brewery. Fuck yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> unfortunately yeah. sounds very similar to many people's stories. <laughs> it's like you're but, a fan, you're into it, and all, you have this horrible, terrible, terrible idea that sounds great, and then you run with it. I thought the way we went about opening was pretty smart. It took six years to open after that. He he went and took online classes on the business of brewing from Portland State University. Okay. The company I was running was going under. Just the technology was surpassing what my company could do. And we didn't have the money. So I just started getting jobs in the craft beer world. Like anything, I ran groups. And I got to know, you know, pretty much every beer buyer and all the craft beer bars in Northern Virginia and D.C. and such. So, Did you guys already have a plan at this point that one guy was going to handle certain parts of the business and so that was what you were sort of going to go learn and get experience in? Yeah, yeah. He was going to be kind of the bigger money guy, the, the business, you know, the, the kind of behind-the-scenes guy. He had one business partner, kicked him out after two years and brought me in and my money too. <laughs> but yeah, so I just, for example, I would became a brand ambassador for Duval, who owned like Boulevard and Obagon and Firestone Walker, but I didn't deal with that. I would just go do tastings and kind of pay like 30 bucks an hour too back. It was, yeah. But I got to know like all the Whole Foods buyers and all the beer buyers. So 
our distribution plan was coming into effect there. So I, I really used that to my benefit. I didn't tell a dual people. I mean, technically, I worked for a temp agency as that anyway. So. And then I got some other like part-time jobs. Everything from like, okay, what's this POS system? How, how is it? How are the customers like using this? Like all kinds of stuff. I just sucked in. So one question, during this time, you're kind of hopping around, you're getting experience in different facets of the, of the industry. Looking back, were there any red flags that might have, uh, that you missed that with experience? You're like, man, I didn't realize that this was going to be a problem. And Not really. It was maybe about a year before you opened was kind of the beginning, really, of the trillion, let's call it the Trillium Treehouse Effect, the weekly releases. And mm-hmm. It's amazing how dramatically everything was changing. And what year was that uh, when you finally opened? We opened in May 2018. We signed the lease June 2017. You know, we had all the money two years before that. It took me two years to really find a good look, a good building. I don't want to say a good location because that was the downfall. But also the industry, our business plan, what we had with the loan and the bank and our investors, this was our plan is distribute and taste and remodel. Okay. So I ask everybody, like, with the business plan, did you guys have help writing that? Did you sit in a room? Did your brother kind of handle it? Like, how did you how'd you write your business plan? He did basically the Portland State University thing. Helped him with it? Basically, how to write a business plan, a P&L sheet, you know, everything. And pretty soon, I did see flaws into that program, even though I didn't take it. You know, we were on our own when it came to zoning. The commercial real estate aspect, zoning, dealing with local government being in i'm in arlington virginia this fall church city is like across the street from me fairfax county is a few blocks away and then we ended up opening a loudon which is a few miles away they have dc so there's so many different zoning requirements just here alone none of the classes touched on that at all I, i've uh, actually reached out to some of these schools um for the, for the purpose of in a sense, vetting them, but also you know, offering any insights I can give. And, and that those are the kinds of things I was curious about when you come out of there. Anytime you go to school, it's usually going to be knowledge that's eight years ago. And in an industry like craft beer, that's a fucking eternity. Um, be curious to know you know what you actually come out with. And uh, so I would challenge any of those schools to come on the show and or bring me over there. I, I would really like to see what insights we can find there. But uh, from an advice perspective... What did that mean, looking back now? What were some of those zoning issues that you ran into? And, and was there a county or a jurisdiction that maybe you should have opened in and might have actually had a different trajectory? We wanted, we really wanted Arlington County. We walked away from one building that these other guys opened a brewery in. They spent a lot of money on lawyers and a lot on the build-out, too. A lot more than you should have. Mm-hmm. You get open. The zoning is crazy. But the other building we looked at... we. We spent eight months trying to make it work, and then I snuck in there with the, the contractor, and he looked at this old elevator shaft. The elevator's removed, and he just looks like, that's a big EPA environment. <laughs> uh, yeah, he violated, because all the oil leaked and stuff. It was oh. in the landlord's like, yeah, not my problem. But parking, really, parking is the biggest issue with any zoning. It makes a little sense, but like Fairfax County wanted to zone us as like a fast food restaurant the fuck yeah you know we so we end up in loudon county where there's always an already a number of breweries ton of wineries too and the county is really vast it's the highest income per capita in the country also okay so there's a lot of money out there but the, they knew how to help you get in because they had done it before okay 
So when you guys finally uh, decided on a building, did you have a broker help you with the lease or an attorney or did you just? No, we, we, so we had one set of brokers and I had asked about one building in Fairfax County and they just said, oh, the landlords don't want a long-term lease. Four months later, another brewery opened their second, uh, signed the lease for the second location, killing it there. I don't know if we would have been able to afford the kind of build out that was necessary, but mm-hmm. it turned out they were steering us into only buildings they kind of were double dipping in. So we fired them. Then we hired some other brokers. I definitely recommend finding a really good broker because these guys are really good, really upfront and honest. And we got one lease from somewhere. They're like, this is shit. Just walk away. Okay. And then the one we're at now, they redlined the hell out of it. Like the previous brokers, like, oh, don't redline it too much. Like that, that's the biggest red flag right there. So these guys, they were so good. We had to resend our lease back to uh, a bankruptcy attorney the other day just so he could make sure that, yes, the personal guarantee was taken out of our lease. Really? Which, they were, were they claiming that it wasn't? No, we were okay. just making sure. We were, we were just seeing what the SBA loan is in my brother and wife's name. And that's a whole nother topic. But luckily that, and then there's some hop and mall contracts that my brother's a personal guarantee with that somebody else signed for. Not me. <laughs> I guess that, that conversation will probably come later in this podcast. Yeah. Well, like I've always said, like I actually have a plan for when to bring those things up, but if are, are relevant now, we'll go through it. But no, usually in the third section, that's where we're yeah. kind of getting that. Yeah. I definitely recommend having a broker because you don't pay them. The, the landlords ultimately pay them. We definitely found the right brokers. And they were super helpful. So I heard you say, I think it was in that interview that that you had a great lease. So what what do you think were some of the wins that you got on there um, that were able to negotiate with those brokers? It was a three percent escalation clause. They knocked it down to two and a half percent, which really isn't that much, but it's still a lot helpful. of money. Yeah, <laughs> the long term. I mean, our lease at the beginning was maybe fifty six, fifty seven hundred. It's up to about fifty nine hundred now. After five years, that's really the lease was definitely not an issue for us. I see a lot of people speculating, like, oh, they they've been around five years, the lease must be up. It's like, no, most breweries don't sign five year leases that I know of. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of threes. We had done a Oof. five, a five, a five with a five year extension, and then a five year extension at fair market value. But that was the best we could get. But yeah, once that fair market value kicks in, unfortunately. We're seeing a lot more of that. I interviewed a cidery actually in San Francisco. Their rent tripled at the end of the six years. But I mean, you're talking about San Francisco and in the peninsula of San Francisco. But that, to a lesser extent, even if your rent went from 6000 to 9000 that's not tripled, but that's a lot of fucking cases of beer. <laughs> so Yeah, it, it definitely is. All right. So you got a lease you think is good. You mentioned the SBA. So obviously you had to get some money there. You did a bank loan and that was with the business plan. You had kind of knew what you needed. Was there a lot yeah. of capital that had to go into that? SBA is usually better than a regular loan, but we had a lot of silent investors who yeah. were just putting in the buying was 25,000 got you 1.25% basically. So yeah. So between that, I, I plunked in, you know, whatever cash I had, my brother did also for us, I was like, I mean, we knew, like, okay, you're not going to get rich doing this, but our goal is having something. Like, for me, it was a career because mm-hmm. I needed one also. <laughs> so, so I guess I just paid for a job, right, <laughs> when you look back on it. But there's a lot, you know, um, 
I mean, we knew like you're not going to get rich, but at the time it was really trending in the right direction and stuff. Um, another good thing we did was we hired contractors and architects who had done at least, I think the architect had done eight or nine breweries before <laughs> and contractor also did about eight breweries. So when you talk to the architect or some architects, they look at the building, oh, we can make this nice bar here, this and that. For the other architect we had ultimately hired, he looked, yeah, and here's where we could put extra space, like we could put attachments, we could put extra tanks here and this and that. Like, they saw it as a manufacturing facility. Better which use is of the space. We, yeah. So that that really helps too. So So you get the build out going. You selected a a couple of big questions that I always have in the startup part. You selected a fifteen barrel four vessel brew house. So you projected a ton of output, right? That was the plan? Yeah. Especially with an oversized fifteen barrel system, four thirty barrel fermenters, one fifteen barrel fermenter, two thirty barrel brights. So what was sort of the brand position of Rocket Frog? Were you planning to be three states, regional? What was the long-term plan? The, the initial launch was D.C. and Northern Virginia. And it was, everyone was saying at the time, it's like, you know, you want to, you're going to have to distribute a lot more first before, you know, you really build up a robust crowd. So you're like, all right, we'll do a 75-25 split, liquid going out the door 75%, you know, with the distributor. And such. So that was the initial plan. Okay. Um, you know, we signed with this up and coming small distributor, which I like. We, it's funny. We, I talked to some of the bigger distributors. One, their whole model was, we'll put you in a gross stacks in the grocery store. I was like, we, you know, we didn't have a canning line at the time. So we we're just doing draft only. Uh, another one just said, Hey, uh, I don't have time. They, they were right down the street. Like, we don't have time for you. The end of the year thing. Mm-hmm. These other. You know, they knew who I was because I did all this work on the side. So they, they were following me as kind of, as I was following them. So we signed with them. Like a week after we opened, the one distributor said they didn't have time. They had tasted a bunch of our beer and they called me up. And it was probably the only time I ever told one guy professionally to fuck off. Really? Yeah. So he, he's no longer the general manager there either. Yeah. So that, and then we're like, okay, well, we'll do mobile canning and mobile canning just, adds a whole lot of other costs. Well, I definitely want to dig into that, but I do want to back up just slightly. I'm very curious, and not trying to shit on Portland, but uh, they recommended that to your brother that you guys have a business model that was draft only in 2018? Well, or... it was going to be draft only for the first, like, six months. And then was mobile canning supposed to be the next phase, or did they get to that point even within the model? That was our next phase. That was, as far as I know, that was not in the Portland State curriculum yeah okay is i actually have an entire chapter devoted to my book about why mobile canning is fucking stupid and so if portland told him to do a mobile canner i'm gonna call him up but uh yeah but let's actually let's get into that on the next segment we take a quick break and then when we come back i want to talk about some of the numbers of mobile canning and how that worked out for you guys clearly why you needed to do it so let's take a quick break okay yeah you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. 
AccuBear is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer off your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to AccuBrew.io, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. All right, welcome back. I appreciate you sticking with me. We are going to get into one of my most favorite things to hate, which is canning, specifically with mobile canning. So in 2018 specifically, I think this is one of those pivotal moments that we as an industry sort of figured out the draft only is not one to go so far as to say impossible, but really fucking hard to make any money. So at some point, you've got to go packaging. Uh, it's a mistake I made. I started off draft only as well. And then, you know, went into packaging late and obviously had to, you know, refinance at that point, find a way to do that, you know, learn the game, skew management and how to talk to chains and all that kind of shit. But so how'd that look for you? So you start off draft only and all of a sudden, did you have conversations? Did you go to your brother and be like, look, dude, we got to have small format or what, what was the catalyst to get you there first? Let's talk about that. It was always in the plan. We didn't want a crowd machine mm-hmm. because we didn't want to have to buy pallets and pallets of cans and store them basically but you know we we within one week of our grand opening we already had 30 draft accounts basically because people knew who i was and they're like you know we'll give him a shot and then when the liquid turned out to be very good and more importantly it sold for them yeah that's all uh, i really care about is if it depletes they're into it yeah i mean we we opened with a brown ale and it did great in distribution and did the second batch the second batch won us the GABF bronze, and we were still four months old. So demand really rose for that and for everything else. So our beer was pretty polished when we opened, which is one of the things I was most proud of, too. Okay. Um, well, so let's, t- but, let's stick a pin in the can thing, then. I want to ask about this. So lineup selection, I think, is also exceedingly important, especially when you're looking at your projections. Yeah, You, know, you can't do that with a barrel-aged barley wine. So... How did you guys decide in the beginning what you wanted to make? Or what was going to drive um, those revenue targets that are in your business plan? I knew you had to have a really easy drinking beer. Mm-hmm. Port City Brewing is a big brewery in Alexandria, Virginia, near us. I remember going to their fifth anniversary party. They were releasing some, an old ale, which is an awesome style if you could find it. And I remember going, there was like 200 people there. Half of them were just drinking their flagship wit. <laughs> Light bulb really went off on me. It was like, this is what people were paying for. So so we took that knowledge. Open was, we had a Blondale to open with, which we then, within a year, changed it to a Hellas Lager. Super cheap to make. You can make them tasty without really spending a lot of money on it, too. Th- those are your biggest revenue generators in your tap room. Did you guys do something different with your Blonde, or was it somehow unique in the marketplace? Or was it sort of a placeholder volume mover, really, that you, know, you kind of knew you had to have? It was more for the tasting room. We did a lot of keg. You know, it's not that hoppy at all, so hops, you don't have to worry about hops dissipating. It wasn't really designed to, like, go out into the market and, you know, even though people did buy it for distribution, but it wasn't really designed for that. It was designed for us. It's not a sexy beer. It was just a easy drinking. It was an American Blonde Ale, so it was just a beer, basically, but just a nice one. So why did it um, transition to a lager? Did it slow down, we, stop selling, or did you... Was it not as good as a lager would be? 
No, then our brewer made a hell of lager that was really good. I thought it, and it was much better, and we needed a log. We hadn't lagered anything at the time. And so, to me, it was a natural transition. Okay, it's a, to me, it's a better style. You know, it has more longevity, too. But it's just I just liked it better. When you have a blonde ale, then you have some IPAs. You know, you're using the same yeast. Like, just we were using a US 05 Chico yeast, which is a pretty neutral flavor. So having the Hellas had a different flavor profile was still the same results of an easy drinking, delicious beer. And then, then when he did batch two, he changed the pH balance of the water, change, you know, mimic that of Munich, the, the chemistry of the Munich water, tap water to ours. And it really, it was a slight change, but it really elevated the beer. Like, all right, flagship. So you started off with a blonde and a brown? Yeah, so. and a West Coast IPA and a West Coast double IPA. Okay. And looking back, do you think that was the right lineup in the beginning, or would you have changed something now, knowing what you know now? I would definitely not do it. The double IPA is fantastic. I would have made that maybe a three-time-a-year beer, just how fucking expensive. Okay. Just in the perspective of the economics of it, but did it sell okay? It's a great, but then once we started canning, it didn't move that well on draft. People just bought cans and Mm. 8.8%, you know, I'd rather have somebody buy two lower price Hellas than one higher price double IPA. Sure. Because if they're being a drinker. (laughs) Yes. And my margins are so much better on that. But there was a demand, like, we ended up having a lot of permanent lines with the double IPA. Actually, almost all, all of our beer, all of our flagships, once we transitioned to the Hellas instead of the Blonde, there's permanent lines all over the place with each one of those beers. Which was rare in 2018. You just see a lot of permanent lines outside of just being the brewery's line or whatever. So that that's good. You had your flagships you know, consistently depleting, not having to worry about the rotation game. What do you attribute right. that to versus everybody else that has to rotate? Was your beer just that fucking good, Richard? I mean, I'll be I'll be honest. It was it was. You know, I'm not I'm not. I mean, I'm I'm a really picky drinker. You can see my face. I think there were in my brother. One of my brothers is a TV producer. There's a YouTube series on opening our brewery. You could see me drinking the first beers. You could see like I wasn't the biggest fan of the single IPA when I first tried it. And then more. And then we ended up doing a different one. But. I think in it, you see me drinking the double IPA, and I'm like, holy shit, this is good. You know, like, you can see a natural reaction. We, we scored, we, we definitely scored our brewers, fantastic brewer, really smart guy, a PhD in biochemistry, and had a, he's a BJCP certified judge, so he knew how to translate flavor profiles scientifically into the beers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were, I think we definitely got lucky with that. Well, we have so many different lines that I feel a little bit disorganized, but I'm going to go down this one anyways because I want to know. Uh, this is an important one. You uh, you and your brother obviously had made the decision in the beginning that you weren't going to be the head brewers and that you were going to hire that help out, which can end disastrously many times. Two of the three brewers I hired were completely fucking worthless. So w- how did you get this guy? Why was he great? And what what would be your advice into how to find a great brewer for somebody else looking in the same situation? There was a brewery around here called Mad Fox Brewing. Was? So, uh, yeah, they it was a brew pub. Around their 10th years, they went up. I mean, I mean, it's funny. I could break down what I think went wrong there. <laughs> a lot of breweries branched off from there. I mean, I, I'm a walking distance to it, and I rarely went. Just 
the beer program never really changed that much. Food service got really bad. Even though I really like the owners, the Bill Madden, some people call him like the godfather of the brewing industry around here. I didn't want anyone from his lineage, though, as our brewer, because they had a really good coal shit. So all these other brewers had people from his lineage. They're doing colches. And mm. So we we wanted someone from the outside. And, you know, we had a couple different people we identified. And then this guy responded to a Brewbound article. Long story short, he ended up moving with his family from uh, New Hampshire, Massachusetts. You know, he lives in New Hampshire, brewed in Massachusetts. And his wife got a job at a local university. So... So that was a big part of our thing is we, we, we had, we knew we had to be different. And also I think there's a can back then the beer is a lot more consistent now with, between all the breweries, but I didn't want anything from that lineage. Sure. Well, the whole point, you're trying to do something new and different and unique. So you needed some lady that, that wasn't inside that same thing. So how did you know he was the guy? We talked to him first or my brother did, I think interviewed him on the phone and just had some kind of conversations. Then he sent us some growlers from his place in Massachusetts, which I was surprised most of them held up in shipping, uh, um, just a regular glass growler. He was making the brown ale there, and I'm not the biggest brown ale fan, but I knew it was different. Like, this is this is good. This is complex. His, his double IPA was more West Coasty. From talking to him, I would say 90% of the brew program he was interested in is what we wanted. We had in mind, too. Okay. So he had the expertise that you were looking for to make the products that you knew you wanted. Exactly. All right. And then, so did you have to recruit him? Like, was he kind of looking? Was it a challenge to get him to come in? Did you force him to take 10 grand less than he wanted? Like, how did that look? He was looking for a change. From what I understand, his wife was a professor at the university up there, but the contract was ending. And so she was looking for another position in her field they weren't from that area they're not from this area either so they're just looking for something different and so they found him and we flew him down and i think she interviewed at the university one of the universities down here interviewed him we're like we liked him you know basically we flew him down i just took him on the tour of the local breweries and we just chatted about beer you know he's at one brewery he's like he's like yeah like this one brewery just opened he's like yeah I could do this a lot better. To me, it didn't seem cocky. It seemed like confident and like he seemed like he could really make it better. I like that. You know, when he worked for us, he ended up crossing the line into cockiness. But at the time, you guys had good chemistry, though? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We were offering him not just the head brewing position, but like you're going to have a lot more freedom and your stuff, that sort of thing. And and I think he saw it. And But also, we were. All three of like my brother, him, and I were had similar feelings on what we like to drink, and then I brought in what I think would sell too. So I, I think we're gonna talk a little more about uh, Mr. Russell the Love Muscle in a minute, but let's get back to uh, <laughs> so we we talked at this point in time. We're open. We have pretty solid draft accounts. We've got recipes. We, we the beers are good. They're out in the market. And like we talked about earlier, you decided that you wanted to go into small format cans. So. How did that look? How You chose mobile canning, right? We chose mobile canning. Yeah, I wish hindsight is a different thing. But uh, yeah, we chose mobile canning. Ironheart is pretty, is pretty much the only game in town. I think they have pretty much monopoly on the East Coast. Yeah, so we did, you know, they came in, did their test. 
our brewer was in charge of setting it up, letting us know what the cost is, and that all those conversations were with my twin brother about all the costs and such. At that time, my job is to go out, push the push the liquid out, and distribution because at the time you're getting some nice checks from the distributor. You know, we're still and, and at the same time, I was working on building up the tasting room, and we had a tasting room manager, so I could float either doing sales or running events inside the brewery and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, so we so November 2018, we did our first two beers. We did a one-off IPA called Silver Sun and the double IPA flagship, Angry Angry Owl. And, you know, that was really exciting for us. We, I don't know if you saw our logo. We have a really fun logo, and our yeah. branding was on point. So we had some really cool cans, too. which Stands out, yeah. I saw. I went back and looked. Yeah. I saw them on your Instagram. It's, it's a cool look, for sure. And yeah. clearly, if the beer backs it up, then that it would definitely work. Do you know how much? Did you have to do, like, 30 barrels of each? Like, you know what the minimums were? I think the minimum is at least 10 barrels. And so we would basically double batch and do 30 barrels of liquid in each. I think we'd get between 150 and 200 cases maybe of each beer. And, you know, 16-ounce cans, 10 cases is about a barrel of beer. I always wanted to make sure we had at least of one-offs eight half barrels for our taps. And then, you know, we wanted just to make sure we never ran out of our flagships. So, you know, you had to juggle that with each candy run. But yeah, so that was exciting. It all got shipped out and great, you know. Like, how cool is it seeing, you know, your beer at your favorite stores on the shelves next to, like, some of your favorite brands and it holds up to it. It's like, yeah. it is awesome. And it's selling and the retailers are happy and they order more. It took me a little bit and then I was like, man, everyone's making so much more money off our cans than we are. Yeah, well... But, in your defense, most people don't do those numbers um, in the beginning. And, and in, obviously, the, the idea was either this, we can do this, or we can buy a canning line, which, you know, you don't, maybe you don't have a couple hundred grand laying around to do that. So maybe that was the only choice. But did you guys consider purchasing a canning line as one of the options? Or was it just right off the bat, let's just we, do this one thing? The beginning of this year, you know, our last year in operation, I was looking into the, the Gosling line, uh, the Wild Goose Gosling, which... It was pretty manageable. A couple breweries around us have it. They told me you can only do like eight cans a minute versus thirty-two cans a minute, but you still you still get like the same DO, the same control, uh, the same quality canning as you did with these other high-end ones. I wish we had opened with that and did limited canning for distribution. But there's a reason why I'm here talking to you now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all make mistakes. Um, so yeah. We, you know, I think your opening two paragraphs on, you know, on your site says, you know, pretty much says it like, hey, there's a hidden a hidden truth to the business side of it, which a lot of times you don't find out until it's you're like, what the fuck are we doing? You know, we started rolling pretty heavily in canning, too. So there are some stores that would have eight different SKUs of ours all lined up. You know? And the thing is, your friend's like, man, you guys must be doing so well. I see you out everywhere else. And I was like... Well, I'm making fucking nine, ten bucks out case off that if I'm lucky. Did you kind of know that going in, or were you like, because obviously, unfortunately, there, there's a lot of upfront costs to what you're doing with the cans, and then to only make nine dollars on the back end once a distributor pays you net thirty, sixty, whatever that is, it's easy to sort of not see it, I guess, in on paper until you really sit down. If when you first started, had you already done the numbers, to know you're only gonna make nine dollars a case. 
we had, I mean. Or did you know? I guess maybe your brother did, but did you know? He, he, that, that's one thing we did talk about. Okay. And we did know. The brown ale was maybe nine bucks a case. Some of our other beers we made more, more per case, but also we had enough, we had a lot. We're like, okay, our break even is getting money from the distributor and our profits from the tasting room, which not, in hindsight, it's not a great way to think, but also I think if we fast forward to really where we went wrong on this model, our brew house was just a little too small to really profit in distribution and too big to profit in the tasting rooms. But, you know, we were chugging along. There, there's a lot of demand for our beer and such. So, so yeah. So did you – one of the biggest issues that uh, my friend Jeff always wants me to ask everybody, once you go into small format package and you decide to go into chain stores, the demand for – tastings and for support and all that kind of stuff comes in how did you guys manage that with a small team the distribution company was really good with i did ride-alongs with i think they had like seven or eight different reps and i did ride-alongs with all of them at least every two months i was in doing at least one ride along with each one like hey you want to do this tasting here this tasting here and i was like as you know i said yes to everything especially the first year and festivals too let's put festivals into that kind of marketing thing that's another misnomer of oh you should do this best <laughs> also one thing i quickly learned with this when people how many people told you this is good exposure for you but what is exposure like, it'll get your name out there that's my one i can't stand that term yeah yeah what does exposure mean like my whole goal is to get you in the tasting room i think the first year it was worthwhile to do events citywide and area-wide and then after that you know kind of slow down like i would only do events closer to the brewery so I can introduce people to our brand, give them like a little coupon things to go to the brewery for a full experience. Because there's another there's another way. So like brands I know, like Jester King, some of the more esoteric guys, they would do the opposite. They would intentionally do festivals and markets they weren't in to create this hype and this. And it obviously fucking worked for them. But and I I would agree. I think yours makes more sense. I I also experienced the same thing. At some point, I wasn't going to get traded five states away. And not not enough to pay the bills, right? Like it would happen, but not enough that people were yeah. lining up out the door to sell out a, a release the morning of. So you kind of saw that that at some point some of these festivals just didn't have an ROI that was worth it to you. No, I mean the people who make money off the festivals are the fest the festival host and the distributor. So we're you know us being in Virginia is a three tier state. I cannot sell my stuff to the festival, and then the only times I can is like when it's a charity thing. What is that charity people ask you? Like, can you donate it, which is illegal in Virginia, which is kind of an easy out for us. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're required to come for like six hours in port. You can't drink your beer while you're there. All right, you're going to. I quickly learned like the difference between a well run festival from the pouring side of it. So I would be like, all right, are, are you buying lunch? Are you paying for food? What, what's it called? <laughs> What's the green room look like in this place? Right. I mean, and, and it wasn't just to be like, hey, what do I get out of this? It's like, really, I'm spending all day there. Plus, I got to spend money, you know, on my own food. I, are you buying ice? You know, do I have to put them by the ice? You yeah. Know, stuff, so many little things like that. And we get asked a lot to do them. It's, it, it starts to get overwhelming a little bit. But, yeah, the whole idea, it's going to promote your brand, right? It's going to get your name out there. It's going gonna, it's gonna to give you exposure. Whatever. It's not like I'm walking around with uh, what's it called a trench coat and no clothes underneath. It's like, is that you know opening it up? That good exposure or not? That's it's exposure. I'll tell you that. 
push the break. All right. Well, let's take another quick break, and then we come back. What I want to really get into is, the, you know, obviously kind of how it turned and how that ended up looking. But it sounds like once you sat down and did the numbers, similar to like what I did three years before I closed, is that uh, it didn't look as pretty as you thought it did. So let's take a quick break, and we'll come right back. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb, considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they've got you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right, welcome back. Let's get into some nitty gritty, some nuts and bolts. So obviously most of the time your twin brother is running kind of the numbers piece of it and at some point you decided that you wanted to really take a deep dive into what was going on. What was the reason for that? Did you start to see some cracks in the wall? Were you just you know, having trouble making payments on different things and you wanted to take a look at the business? Or what was going on? Why did you decide to do that? October, 20, October 2021, brewers, we really can't brew because we had maxed out credit on two of our big mall suppliers, which which is news to me. I know we had done before, but... He's like, tell, tell your brother to, you know, go pay these. It's like, if a brewer's not brewing, he's going to think that his job's in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. And I would say that wasn't the case. Like, there's other things that could have been he could have been doing. But that, and then he left, he told us he was thinking about leaving the beginning of November 2021. and Like the next month? I guess, kind of funny, because we, we actually, like, sent him, well, he asked, and we, there's, like, in Virginia Beach, about four miles, four hours away. It's kind of a, a craft beer kind of meeting with a bunch of the brewers. Mitch Steele was kind of one of the hosts from New Realm and previously Stone Brewing. And it wasn't that expensive. So we're like, yeah. And I guess there, an opportunity came up for a brewery around here. You know, his wife's got a young kid. I, I don't fault him at all for leaving. And, you know, you have to take care of your family, number sure. one. It, and so I'll never be mad about anyone for, for doing that. But uh, when he told us that, my brother and I never argue we never try to keep them or like we're like okay <laughs> so we left so the first the first week of december he was out and so i went and took all the brew logs and i really did a deep dive and then i started crunching all the numbers like i, I went to different mall sites and started like pricing out these beers and then seeing this, the pnl sheets that him and my brother had about the cost per barrel and I was like, none of it made sense. I was like, how are we spending so much fucking money? And then I would see, like, on, on his brew logs, you know, they're all handwritten and such. He would say, okay, we got 107 cases of this. We got, like, 10 or 15 half barrels and this many six stills. And then I started seeing a couple things where we had, we did a Kavikis IPA. Not cheap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember we really blew through that fast. And I looked, it's like, there's three half barrels. But 107 cases. I was like, no, we're, we had it. So what happened to my mandate of we have to have, you know, six to eight half barrels? I saw that with a few different beers, especially towards the end. You think that was just that he had canned first 
and then just there wasn't enough left over for the kegs, or just ultimately he wasn't managing it correctly. He's like, he's like, well, how to blow through the labels? Like, no, no, he didn't. How to do this? And then I, another time, I took a really deep dive. I mean, always diving, but like I really priced out. We were gonna can about four barrels of our Hellas Lager. I was hoping to do it in this past August. A friend of mine, one of my investors, was offering to pay for the canning run. I was like, great. Yeah. So, so I was like, okay. So I was like, well. If I take six kegs, that's three barrels worth, and can it all in the 16-ounce packaging, we can make about 2400 bucks off that. Okay. I can make about 5400 bucks off that if I just sell it all on draft. Mm-hmm. That was super eye-opening. And you had you know, enough tap room business that you could do that? No, not by then. But, but also, you're like, okay, how fast can I get this 2500 versus how long will it take me to get to these last six kegs to make the 5400 So that's kind of the dance you really have to do. With canning, even if we have our own canning line, that's a three thousand dollar difference in sales of that liquid, and just and that's just on six kegs. And I still don't have any answers, but I know there's a dance to do with what the right ratios of canning it all. And definitely canning when you can with the mobile canners, you don't have control of that, well, to an extent. So you have to do whatever they're, but you have a minimum, and you have to do the whole batch to make it make exactly. sense. Exactly, but that was all part of the deep dive but the initial dive was like you could look into the brewer's brain the way he did all the logs you know it was really really well done but then you're like why the fuck are we only getting this many kegs especially like a Kavikis IPA you can be a fast seller on tap mm-hmm. there's another one I remember the only time we did 12 ounce cans was our uh, Belgian triple it sold really well the first time and the second time we did it in cans we were doing can pours in the tasting room for a while and when I, I remember when I looked and saw the log, I was like, what? Again, we only had like four half barrels of it. And that's not a cheap beer to make. Well, and then once you've canned it, then there's labor and cost and stuff that went in there. If it had just gone straight into a keg, your profit yeah. got, got eaten up by those different pieces that touched yeah. it. So that was a lot of the deep dive. You know, I wasn't looking in, at our bank account. You know, I, I knew my brother was really super stressed out. We got down to like, we had like five or six beers on tap this year. Then. I got creative and found ways to pay for a bunch of beers to be made, which by the time we closed shop, we had like 10 beers on tap. Yeah, this last year was a really big struggle. But so What do you attribute the struggle to? Was it, were, were the revenue, was the revenue growing profit? I mean, what was what it was, but as you were expanding throughout the different years and then it leveled off and or came back down well, or did it just never quite a, hit the peak? We were hitting our stride by... Uh, the end of 2019, like December was really bad, but then we really hit our stride, we thought, coming into 2020. Like something felt felt like there was a little change. And like, okay, we're getting a little more robust taste room. And it was building and building until March. And then this little pandemic happened. Yeah. You know, every, every state was different on how it operated and such. Everyone's got different feelings about that. But <laughs> it wasn't good for every business either. For, no, it wasn't good for many hospitality businesses, put it that way. And coming out, you know, I think this beginning of 2022, I think kind of really felt like, okay, we're getting back to normal, we're doing this, but man, people's habits just completely changed. Our suspect location became even worse. You just couldn't get them to come to the tasting room? Yeah. So we were doing like three to 4,000 every Saturday pre-pandemic by the by the end we were lucky to do that in a whole week which you know is like back in 2018 you could just have good beer and that was it but i i did know about 29 like 
probably six months after opening, it's like, fuck, we should have we should have had a permanent food component here somehow. That was definitely a lesson I learned. I mean, clearly, I wasn't going to open a restaurant for many reasons, but having some sort of consistent food and then the space to hang out. Do you know off the top of your head, like how many seats you had in the tasting room? How many seats? We probably had about 60 to 70. We built a deck last year uh, outside, which, you know, added a lot. Virginia ABC was really good about letting you expand your outdoor use, and they still haven't rescinded that and a few good things they've done. But coming out of the pandemic, I think you just had to offer so much more. Towards the end, or the whole last year, I was like, okay, how do we attract non-beer drinkers? You know, we, we can make a hard soda and hard seltzer. And that's one thing I really wanted to do, you know, at least it'll attract the gluten-free people. <laughs> I think ultimately we just weren't offering a full experience that people really wanted coming out. I mean, there's also a lot of breweries in our area. There's one in our parking lot. They have a taco stand inside. They now have a cocktail bar. Completely different beer program. And if you like our style of beer, you won't like theirs and vice versa. You know, our, our beers are more clean, uh, less lactose and this and that. And but so theoretically, let's say roughly from 2019 to after the pandemic, you guys didn't fundamentally make different beer. The quality didn't drop dramatically to the people's palates noticed that it wasn't as good. It just at, at that point, your business needed to evolve because market conditions changed and it didn't. Right. Exactly. And I think there's a bunch of farm breweries in our county, in the county of the breweries, and but like about 20, 30 minutes away from us. And, and they're, they just rake it in. They have, they, you know, they, they could do a lot more because they're agriculture. Oh. <laughs> only, I think only two of like the 10 farm, farm breweries are really farms. Right. Obviously, those two actually make the best beer of any of those farm breweries, but they have, they create a whole destination. Do you, are you familiar with the Washington, D.C. area? Not really, no. It's, Except well, there's a bunch of asshole politicians that live there, but other than that, I don't know anything about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm in it, you know, this, so Dallas Airport is the experts do well, and that's kind of where the brewery is located. It's the data, data center capital of the world. Like, hmm. 85% of the world's internet traffic comes to that county. Really? So it's, it's like Silicon East, yeah. So, but it's also... A slightly less concentrated population. So if you like, for me, I, I live in Arlington, Virginia, twenty minute drive to the brewery, taking toll roads. Like, okay, if now as a beer civilian, what are, what are you going to offer me now more than just some good beer and such? If I'm going if I'm going to pay for an Uber out there and get drunk and pay for an Uber back, so I get it. We tried course correcting. I didn't think there was a way. What would you have done either differently in the beginning or definitely at the end? Do you think that would have made a substantial difference? Probably a permanent food pop-up. Some of the other breweries I see, they partnered quickly or as an opening with where people would run the food. And there's really good food, too, because the food creates destination on its own also. So that I would have done that 100% differently right off the bat. And the small canning line. What about like ambiance in the tasting room? And I haven't seen the pictures. I'm just curious. Like, did you build a lot of us when we first start? We build an ancillary room next to the brewery where you can kind of see the beers being made and it's cool and, and industrial. And that worked for so long. And I feel like that dramatically changed too. Like, nobody wants to go to that shit anymore. It was maybe 25% like that, but we really did focus on kind of a nice, clean tasting room, focus on that. We didn't have artwork on the walls. It could be sterile. <laughs> I think some of the music, just playing good music, 
I had like three rules of what music my bartenders couldn't play. It was a runny joke, but it was like no system of a down, no Dave Matthews band, and much of music. I, I hate uh, system of a down as well, but I hate corn slightly more. So the Dave Matthews, I remember like the first summer we were open, our taproom manager was a big fan, and I walk in, it's like a Sunday, and there's like maybe five people in the tasting room. Probably should have been more. And all I heard was Dave Matthews coming from the thing. And I was like, this place is so boring. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, I think I think you have every little thing could add to an ambiance. You, you know, you don't have to play the best music, but you have to play something that's going to drive a heartbeat. Sure. Well. So how did it finally happen? Like, at what point did you meet with your brother and be like, look, there, there's got to be an end date to this? Well, the, the whole year, I was like, he has a bankruptcy attorney, a friend who's a bankruptcy attorney, done some other breweries. I was like, dude, just talk to him. Just see see what's going on. Like, get advice. Because, I mean, I think we, we knew this was coming. You know, we, we could ask for all this money in the world from more investors. I didn't want to because what was that going to get them and how far along would that get us? So what? And finally sat down with the bankruptcy attorney. Bankruptcy attorney, like, I don't think it took him that long to say, you guys need to close immediately. Really? Yeah. And, see the insolvency on there, basically. Oh yeah, and we probably should have done it a year ago, to be honest. It's a hard choice. I mean, that I don't know anyone who closes immediately. With it's a passion project, and I mean, it's gonna it's gonna drag out until we took six weeks to actually close. We had a really loyal staff to us, especially in front of the house. But we we didn't have a full time brewer the last year, but we had ghost brewers coming in and brewing some really good stuff for us. So I, but, so I wasn't tied to anybody in a full-time job there. But when we talked, it was like, okay, we have to close. The next question is, when do we tell Ramon, who was our taproom manager at the time, and also an assistant brewer? And I was like, you know, give me a little bit of time. I got to digest. You know, I, mm-hmm. I was really that we're closing. Yeah, because the struggle was over, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't the ending we wanted, not even close to it, but... You know, you're stuck in a hole. You just can't pull your throat out. Well, Did you consider people, selling? Like, was that even on the table? I, I talked to some breweries last year, and we have some stuff. We're in talks right now with some people who I think it's a great production facility to feed into. If you have a small production facility elsewhere or, like, inside the city, or uh, and you only have, like, a three-, four-barrel system, it's a great production facility to brew there because the rent, the rent is easily approachable. But it was operating at such a burn rate, uh, monthly loss yeah. that you needed to shut the operations down and then market the property. I mean, the loan the loan turned out to be an anchor too, the monthly payment for that. Mm-hmm. So we did that, but you know, we had talked to people, and I have a feeling we'll progress where it should close out the loan at the very least. You know, where no one's walking away with money in their pockets, but. If that could happen, that's great for my brother and his wife. Sell for what um, you owe, basically. Because yeah, because they're the ones who signed the collateral, you know, the collateral away. But yeah, so that was kind of the thing. And the, my brother had sent an email to some of our investors, say, "Hey, kind of a last gap. Hey, we're in trouble. This and that." And one of them forwarded to the previous our previous brewer, <laughs> kind of fucked up. Who then, in turn, I know talked to some other breweries and told my taproom manager. So. My taproom manager came up to me one day. He's like, hey, what's going on? Oh, you hadn't and told was, him yet? No, it was like, so my brother had to go on a business trip for his day job, Boston. I was like, you know, when you come back, because I really wanted to be upfront with sure. with the taproom guys. Well, this and is a struggle like, hey. everybody has, because at some point you're worried if you tell the tasting room staff, they won't 
they'll leave and then the, the customers won't come in and give you money in the end. I mean, everybody goes through this exact same thing and everybody wants to tell. So the fact that you had scheduled it is still still a win. You did the right thing. No, I, I think so. Um, you know, everyone's going to do it differently, but I knew the staff, particularly this one, guy uh, was really loyal to us and really good. So we I, I, we owed it to them. And, and most of the other taproom staff just took one or two shifts a week and other jobs. So I told him, I was like, I didn't tell him we were closing that day when he confronted me because like a day after. And I was like, I was like, listen, you know, you know, things aren't good here. David's in Boston. He'll be back. And then we're going to sit down and really figure it out. He's like, yeah, you know, we have December and then January is always the worst month. So mm-hmm. he saw the writing. On the I was like, yeah, I was like, I'll be honest with you. It's not trending in the right way, but you know, we're talking to some people and we'll see. And then the next week I was like, yeah, we're, we're shutting down. I was like, we don't know if it's the exact day yet. It'll be the first or second weekend of December. I was like, Hey, let me talk to the rest of the staff. Give me a week. Cause I want to tell them all up front. Mm-hmm. And so doing that paid off. Cause he's like, I'll stay with you to the end. I was like, great. And it, it didn't feel like lip service, but you don't know. And, but no, it was, so he ended up getting a, a job as an assistant brewer somewhere else, you know, starting two days after we closed. Great. It was great. I was like, too bad he couldn't take some time off. But yeah, so that was the big thing. I, something that always grinds my, not grinds my gears, but you always see on social media, like, oh, these places closed and like the employees found out on social media that they're out of a job. I guess, you know, I, I'm compassionate enough where I didn't want that to happen with our staff. And I wanted to give them an opportunity to find a new job. Yeah. Well, I think there's there's a lot of reasons why that's prevalent, not the least of which being the arrogance of the owners and the selfishness. So obviously it says, I mean, yeah. says a lot that you would do that. I mean, if they all left, I would have just bartended the last couple <laughs> weeks. Probably made at least some good tips for myself. But Might have gotten a bigger you know, paycheck than you did otherwise, yeah. For our last few weeks as Rocket Frog, that wouldn't have been what rock, you know, Rocket Frog. Sure. You know, with our tasting people and the relationships they built with people. Well, so tell me how that last six weeks went. Did you guys do kind of a goodbye party? Did you announce it to the customers? We announced two weeks before the last thing. We really were trying to figure out the last day. It wasn't a secret, though. I mean, without interviewing places. And and I, I told people ahead of time, like, hey, you know, we're also, you know, we have so much, so many kegs in the back if anyone wanted to buy them for distribution last gas sales are crazy the last two weeks we had a closing party the night before our last official day open and it was insane it was it was just we definitely served the most beer that day and had the most people coming in and it was really bittersweet though yeah no i'm sure it, do you remember <laughs> maybe you don't because it was a party do you remember walking out of the building that night did it feel kind of like so the I end? Lasted, right that was the goal i processed beers i was going to show people but i did not drink that much i driving in that day to the brewery to help open it up is when it really some something hit me and i was like man it was like the nerves hit me with it and but then just talking so much and i was like just speak back and drink beer and then you know you have this same conversation with so many people and you're finally like uh and then you know uh this other weird incident happened which you know <laughs> you know was kind of bizarre i guess i won't go into that but it kind of just like bothered me for a bit and then i ended up ubering home actually ubering a bar near my apartment i remember being in the uber i'm like fucking dead sober <laughs> that is, uh, i mean i wasn't dead sober it was 
Right, but, but compared to what you expected. Uh, oh, yeah. I was, I was expecting to wake up the next day somewhere like, how the fuck did I get here? But no, it wasn't like that. But it was exhausting, and it was the people who came up were, you know, it was great. But, you well, know, I, some people were like, oh, I couldn't make it out so much. I'm like, so, like, did you come for you to say goodbye to the brewery or actually, you know, I don't want to shit on anyone who's come in and given us business. So, you know, sure. I never lost appreciation for it, no matter how little business we were doing. Well, this is definitely, I would say, sort of the argument between the two different camps. There's, and, and obviously that last day is probably part of why people don't do it. But there are quite a bit of breweries that just sort of silently go out into the night, don't even post on social media. They are closed after they're closed. They're are some that kind of do what you did. There's some that uh, I interviewed Hair of the Dog in Portland, and, and he's still, what, eight months later, still selling beer online. So there's a few ways uh, to do it, and I know part of why people don't do what you did is having to face everybody, having to stand there and say, I failed. And as a guy who did it, I completely understand that. But looking back, I from talking to you, it sounds like you think you did the right thing, and that that's that's how you would do it again. My, my thing is, you know, it took some time, and just the amount of people came, right? Like, we failed business-wise. There's no question about that. I also think the way the world turned, the big nosedive of our era, like the craft beer scene where we we're located, just diminished. Maybe our, you know, mishandling of stuff just expedited what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. But I, I kind of, I felt like a success, not in the financial terms, but, you know, fighting to get open, being open this long, just fighting the last year. You'd think I'd be salty at the industry, and I'm not. There are some things I definitely don't like about being an owner of a brewery that starting to really no, it's just, you know, just take away the financial part. I think we were successful. Never compromised on beer. Always had great staff, you know, especially in the front of the house. You know, we had great brewers. Well cool. Well let's let's actually um, talk a little bit about kinda of how that you know, looking back, what you remember, what you liked, what you didn't, you know, where you're at, where you think the industry is, and then looking forward, what's coming. But let's take a quick break before we do that, and we'll come right back here in a second. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right. Well, I appreciate you hanging in there. We are now in the fourth and final segment. This is the one I like to call Kelly shits on craft beer. But hopefully you'll you'll have some you know, counterpoint to that. But talk a little bit about the history. So you guys opened 2018, just recently closed. Looking back. If you could pick one memory, what's one favorite memory of the time you had as a brewery owner? For uh, 2018, watching the Great American Beer Festival Awards on a tablet and hearing them announce our name, like we're four months old, like seeing the joy on like our brewer's face and like just our reaction. And we were having a big event at the brewery too, but we were in the corner 
we just started hooting and hollering. It was like, what? What? We were like, we just won a medal. Like, we were dumbfounded. And the pure joy of that was definitely, you know, a fond memory. That feeling was awesome. And then the, was it the next year that you, that was bronze. The next year you got silver, right? Two years later, we got silver. Okay. And, was that same know, elation I, there? Was it uh, diminished somewhat at that point? No, you know, it, to me it was, okay, it was a great beer. So it's like, all right, people could be like, okay, they won one medal to fluke, but winning it again. Yeah. And elevated things like, no, that's, that's consistent. And that, to me, it just kind of solidified, like, good beer. Making good beer style doesn't mean you're going to make money, <laughs> obviously. I mean, the distributor love putting two-time GABF winner on it. And this, I'm like, I, I, I have two medals just hanging off a lamp I'm looking at right now. And it, it's cool. Yeah. You know, it's all said and done. It's a great souvenir to have now. Well, it's a legitimate win. And I talk about that a little bit in the book that uh, I actually have a new real job now and I don't have time, but it would entertain the absolute shit out of me for someone to go dig through the archives and see how many breweries won back-to-back medals for the same beer. It's rare. And so not only did you win one, but you did it twice. Um, even some of the peop- but the quote-unquote best beers in the world haven't done that. So like, that's impressive. That's good. Yeah. So so that, and it's more, it's not, to me that memory wasn't about, yeah, we won a medal. Is that feeling we had. Other than that, I, I don't know. It was, you know, there's so much pressure and anxiety with running a brewery. It's hard to say at any moment, but there's a lot of good friends made with it that... Mm. You know, I'll be able to sit on the same side of the bar with them and have some beers, I guess. Now, for, for my money, I have enjoyed being on the consumer side. So I, I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. The, you can actually kind of get back into beer for beer's sake again and not have to think about whether it's profitable. You know, one this, this is very true. And one thing when opening the brewery, like I was big on untapped and you know, collected all kinds of BA styles. And I did my trading. But one thing is like, okay, owning the brewery, you really, you can't do that. That what I did is find some styles I really like, I really enjoy. So now I go to a beer bar. I'm like, all right, there's putting check pilsner, bring it on, you know, or West Coast IPA. Like it's more about knowing what I like a lot more now as a consumer and just being able to enjoy that without worrying about like having a big beer collection. It had like when you see people like, oh, I have this and this, like. To them, it's a notch in the belt mm-hmm. where I'd rather just enjoy consuming it. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting. I think that the industry went the route you were saying in the beginning for so long or the consumers in the industry. And I'm, for me, I don't know anyone who waits in line for beer and trades it. Three, and, and, that, and there's people out there, but I'm just saying, like, I, none of my friends do that. One thing, I only waited once for beer, like in 2012 in San Diego when Tornado was tapping Pliny the Younger. Yeah, that was... That was cool, but I never waited. I never like waited in line for cans or bottles or anything. That one's also a little bit different because it's a beer you already know is good. For me, the idea of waiting in line for Angry Chairs next stout you haven't fucking tasted, like get the fuck out of here. You don't know if it's any good. Like it might not be great, but, but Pliny, you already know what like, that is, right? So just call those beers like what style is it? Diabetes type three, diabetes type four. That's what they should be called. And no one cares what it tastes like at the end of the day as long as it has some sweetness in there and it's a new flavor. Like, oh, this one's marshmallows? Okay, great. I'll get that one. Well, that one's vanilla and Madagascar vanilla. Oh, that's even better. I'm going to wait in line for that. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, wait. We were just going to do a, a, some vanilla from Fiji and some 
Never mind. <laughs> Probably would have saved your brewery. If you had done it, that we'd have a different conversation today. <laughs> right. Those beers are super expensive, and they're canning it. One trend I do see, I mean, definitely, especially in Washington, D.C. itself, the Wild West with distribution. In Northern Virginia, we're super affluent here. A lot of discretionary income and recessions don't hit this area as bad just because there's always industry of whatever. But I've seen so many of these, you know, hot pipe breweries. They're signing distribution deals with breweries who own distributors in Virginia. They're, they're eating up the shelves. If, if I go to a lot of the bottle shops now, or it should be can shops now, like I don't recognize anything. You read all the labels. It's, they all sound really similar. I know who the breweries are because, you know, everyone talks about them. But what it's done is really push out local, like the local breweries who are, you know, sending package out to market. Like, um, for example, there's this one great beer and wine shop in Vienna, Virginia called Norms. And that double IPA we had, he had one customer who would buy four four packs a week, which is wow. This is a lot of, he always, still honors that kind of customer you know he'll keep those regular things but a lot of bottle shops they're just taking these one-off hits and their whole budgets are being eaten up by like oh this hype brewery out of i don't know philadelphia boston whatever you know name whatever is sending a one-time drop here you know that's really it it takes up their weekly to monthly buying budget and the people are sacrificed are the local breweries and then the consumers who buy the same types of beer consistently. That's the that's ones what, that we like, the, the good consumers, you mean? Yeah, like like that's why like our Hellas is our best seller. It's something people would drink consistently of. Yeah. And I think bottle shops are shooting themselves in the foot by ignoring that type of customer. Well, so it's an interesting debate, and it kind of goes right into the idea of the number of breweries. And so part of the problem is just that's what these guys have to do to get any sort of attention because, for one, they probably can't make a great Hellas Lager, and I would challenge them to prove me wrong. But one of the questions I like to ask everybody is we're basically sitting at 10,000 breweries. How many do you think is the right amount? I don't know. I, I could tell you what I think the right, the right amount is in certain areas. You know, it's a lot easier to dissect that way. You know, we're, we're in Stony, Virginia. There's five or six breweries. I just think we're going to be the first. We're the first to close, but I definitely see two others closing sooner than later. This one brew I really like and is very, very popular. Owners are great. I've seen them doing some stuff that has me, my alarm bells going off for them sending more cans out to distribution, which they hadn't done. And we, they used to sell like over 90% of the liquid out of the tasting room. So that tells me they're not. So I think, I think, I think it's, you know, bubbles definitely burst in that County. I think Arlington County, we could use a lot more, but zoning is so fucked up and everything. Yeah. So I think it's very basis. It's kind of funny. I heard you were interviewing the intergalactic guy. Alex, and I remember going, actually, he's funny. Uh, he actually emailed me about, me buying that like five six years ago and i was really intrigued i was like i could move to san diego <laughs> the ducks were in the row at the time but uh. yeah that's what ends up happening we all uh obviously everybody wants to liquidate everybody wants to, to sell what they have but there's just it, it's tough to put that 
like my, I talk all the time. My wife actually felt really guilty about us selling our brewery. Uh, she was like, we're selling something that I know makes no money to somebody who's not going to make money. And luckily, we found somebody that didn't want money <laughs> or care. They just wanted, you know, and it, that's part of where we all kind of started. Like, hey, we've got, we have some cash from doing something else. Let's have some fun and do this and hopefully it makes money. But yeah, it's, it doesn't. It, very rarely. Like the one reason why we did delay announcing we were opening because we decided and we were ready. But we had, my brother and I had a planned brother's trip with our other brothers to go to San Diego. So we're like, we can't announce we're closing and then just fuck off to San Diego for our brother's drunken fest. So we had to wait an extra week on that. That's and actually what exactly we... what I would have done. <laughs> it would have been funny. Actually, Clean out the cash in the register and go blow it at some brewery over there. Yeah. What did we do? We went, and went to our, our favorite breweries out there, and our favorite beer bars out there. So obviously the love of beer is still there in the industry. So. Yeah. Well, so that's uh, another question. If you could go back and do it all again, would you? No, <laughs> I don't. I, I would do it very differently. Any would, specific changes? Much smaller brew house, much better location, and not compromise on that. One thing I did learn while we were trying to find our place is walk away from a building. They said, "Oh, we can make this work." No, you know, okay. Well, the water line is isn't wide enough, but we could pay for an upgrade. No, walk away. So I wish I'd taken that knowledge I know now and just five barrel system in a much highly concentrated area. I'd pay two. I'd pay happy to pay three times the rent because then your neighborhood you could be a neighborhood bar, but you're brewing your own beer, and then you could pivot a lot easier there too. That's what I would do. Do you think that would have been at all possible had uh, today Richard gone back and talked to yesterday Richard with your brother that? that was something you guys would consider or you you had bigger plans and bigger thoughts at that point may maybe you know um i mean even from the time we signed at least in 2017 to open in 2018 the industry just changed twice over already you know but i think it would be great if i could go back in time uh, let me know when you have that time machine up. i i wonder i th- i think i'd probably heed the warnings at that but everyone's like yeah this is a great idea obviously People thought enough it was a good idea to give us money, and the bank did too. So. Well, 2018 was a different time. Like, it was that was a time when you know every all the and again part of why I have this podcast. Everywhere you looked, it was everyone's doing great. We're all growing. The you know the brewery counts going up, and that's good for the industry. And then you know I think thankfully or however you want to look at it, COVID just sort of like sobered everybody up, and they're like, oh shit, maybe this is not for the best. So, I don't know. In your defense, 2018 was a different time, so. Yeah. I always knew it was a public, you're, you are a public face within the beer drinking community where you're at. And that was always, I'm a pretty outgoing guy, but I, I didn't like the fact that people knew, like, literally knew my business. Oh, yeah. That was. Kind of everything out so, there in the open. Yeah. Like, if I owned an accounting firm, am I going to be like, hey, guys, we're, we're closing in two weeks. Come and get your accounting done before we shut you know. Yeah, it has its positives, you know. It gets you access to be able to meet some really cool people and get into some events. You know that that stuff's really it was cool, but doesn't help you business wise. But it was fun. Yeah, but I don't know of anyone who didn't have fun. I think that at the end of the day, why so many of us stayed in as long as we did. But it's it's the money part that at some point the stress of just 
it's not about making money. It's about breaking even. It's about even just, you know, making it work. So that's the part that's stressful for sure. That is, there's a lot of factors you just can't control in this business also, which as a business owner, you want to be able to control everything Mm -hmm. and just, you can in a lot of fact in a lot of things. So, well, so overall kind of summarize it up. What do you think are the big reasons it didn't work? Take a pie chart. I think financial mismanagement early on got us, got us some debts we can never climb out of. And then, uh, maybe we would have been able to, you know, if, um, the whole global pandemic didn't happen and we were staying on this good trajectory. I think some miscalculations on the size of our brewing location competition just some people just come in oh too much competition and i don't think that's it alone uh, it's yeah part of it i would say maybe 10 to 20 percent of it i think that just the way people's habits change coming out of the pandemic also it's just everything was became so predictable and- so um kind of follow up to that i think like many things in my life i started off very immaturely just sort of bashing the brewer association for what they didn't do and uh, decided that my new focus is going to be to try to encourage the Brewers Association to, to try to take steps to prevent this from happening, as we know that it's going to be a bit of an epidemic of closing breweries. What do you think that, looking back now, like what could the Brewers Association have done either in the beginning or in the end to really kind of either help you through the transition or to prevent some of this from happening? Well, I think definitely has to be more education. You know, the, they're focused right now on a lot of social issues which is great, but I, I I don't see how that will translate into getting people into our tasting rooms, for one. There's this one really big elephant in the room when it comes to music and all that stuff. ASCAP, BMI, whoever the, whoever the fucking... CSAC, I think the other one. There's a few of them, yeah. I got an email from CSAC, like an invoice, like, you owe 51 bucks. <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah. For what? You know, um, I think one of the things is no one knows how to navigate it, you know, like, yeah, you could buy Pandora for business to pay 20 bucks a month for background music. I mean, we had a salsa competition once at the brewery, but it was the condiment. Like, like a chili cook-off, but who could make the best salsa? They tried, like, ASCAP sent me a bill for dancing. What? Really? Yeah. They just saw that it was a salsa competition and just invoiced you with some boilerplate invoices? Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, but the Brewers Association, really, you know, they're an association to look out for us. ASCAP is for and all that is for songwriters. They're basically legal extortionists, though. I was in the licensing business, and it wasn't anything close to what this, uh, what this is like. But they, I think Birth Association needs to like help us navigate stuff. How to, how can we really do that? Because no one knows until... They're basically collection agencies coming after you, mm-hmm. is what they are. Why don't you work with these things, figure out like some good fees? Because you know, if you could figure out a, good, a real structure, not like, oh, here's a live music event license you can have five concerts that you sponsor but elsewhere like, but you can't have them at your brewery like what the fuck yeah so um i think that's one really big thing the ba could do i mean our, we weren't a great music venue but i mean we're all left hanging out there there's all these fucking legal things like that's that's a really big thing the brewer association could do another is kind of um have really good guides on like regulations in your state i guess to me the brewers association is about pumping its own chest it feels like with their events they run i don't have much ill will towards it but you know we did pay them and i don't know what we got out of it but there's definitely a lot of guidance like the ASCAP thing and there, there could be other stuff they could be focusing on too sure um, especially in, in time when they've been making dramatically more money that 
potentially they could. You, so, question: Do you do you look at Bart Watson's their economists like releases as far as like the growth of the industry and all that kind of stuff? No, I would challenge you to do that. So next time you see one come yeah. out, read it, and I want to uh, see if you agree with his conclusions. And I think if I can say anything, I would like to maybe temper the way he says it. Everything with him is growth, growth, growth. Everyone's doing better, but the individual brewery is clearly not doing better. And I feel like that message is, is maybe not being disseminated correctly. But that's my opinion. To me, you know, it's like I said, you could diagnose the industry on a locale basis, per location basis, better than as a whole. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't doing better. Yeah, well, okay, you had, you know, five breweries open up in California, you had three closed in Virginia. That's that's a positive net too. Good for you, right? But Virginia's getting fucked on this one. <laughs> yeah, right. I think... There's two Virginia breweries. We were the first and second to announce we were closing the day we did in Virginia. I definitely think we're getting rashes. Like, and certain areas haven't had the closures, and they're definitely coming. Like, for somehow Houston just hasn't really had them, and they've got like 55, 60 breweries. So there's another another area. It's just a little bit too dense for the population. But unfortunately, it'll it'll continue to happen. So hopefully, the Brewer Association can help in some ways, at least give some guidance through that process. So one of my favorite questions to ask everybody, I'm going to ask you. I think I already know the answer, but it doesn't matter. How has working in the industry affected your relationship to alcohol? Like, did uh, owning a brewery make you more of an alcoholic? Uh, it is weird. I I would say I drank less at first. I think the last the last year, all the stress. I feel like I definitely drank a lot more. I you know I changed my diet around in 2020 after a doctor kind of gave me a scare. And I, Lost 52 pounds, cut out sugars, carb, alcohol, then I gradually came back. But inside the brewery, definitely during the weekdays, I would rarely even have a beer. You know, because I always had to drive home. And that was like... Oh, 20 minutes, yeah. It was like, whatever you do, do not get a DUI. A, you're being an asshole and you hurt someone, but you have a business license. Your, Your name's on the alcohol beverage control thing. So that was always a big thing. But definitely, like, when I went to do tap takeovers in D.C. and I Ubered there, I definitely indulged a lot. But I think I always kind of had, you know, here and there. So I would say uh, it stayed the same, if you will. All right. Was, yeah. You came into it with the love of alcohol that was not diminished. Let's put it that way. I did learn the double IPA was my favorite beer. It's like, I, like, you can't drink that at the brewery if you're going to drive home. Yeah, that's tough. Stuff like that. So... That was a pretty quick lesson. The first time I did have to Uber <laughs> home when the Washington Capitals won the uh, Stanley Cup, you know, we were watching the debris and so that was about a month into our thing. But well, at least you learned how to be responsible with it. So that's the important part. Yeah, you know, because all eyes are on you as you know in this industry at that level. Sure. And we did have a policy, like, if you get a DUI, you're gone. You kind of have to. Well, so what? Uh, what's next for you? What are you going to do after this? I mean, I, I need a job. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm definitely going to stay in the industry immediately because I, I need to get some income. I've been toying around with kind of having a marketing event planning kind of agency of my own, if you will, within the industry and craft beer bars. Cause one thing I really learned in the last year is kind of how to monetize events, you know, from finding sponsors to buy the gift cards for trivia winners in the weekly thing to really running events and stuff. So I feel like I could take that and really monetize it more for the brewery owners and the bar owners and for the vendors who could come there. And so there's something there. I started working on a business plan, but it'd probably take me a few months to really cohesively uh, get it down and 
So if someone's looking for an event planner, have them reach out to you. They'll they'll find you. You, you ran events at the brewery, right? But mm-hmm. if you could do that full time, like there's probably more ways you could figure out how to monetize more. And they're super owner, stressful for the owner. So if you can take some of that off, uh, for sure, I'm sure they'd appreciate it. Ex- exactly. And, you know, what I'm thinking is like, say, okay, we'll have this event. Here's a blueprint of how you should run it, staff it, and how the staff should operate to make it really smooth. So it's really going to be fine details involved in it that my service was will be offered. Hopefully the story of Rocket Frog ends with the next career path that you go through and that you're able to still stay in the industry and do that at the I think that's a ton of value for that for uh, different guys that are out there. So, so, so that's that's it for now, I guess. It's just <laughs> wish it wasn't the holiday season where it's like everyone, you know, hiring freeze and this and that. But maybe it's good to decompress for a couple weeks. Yeah, you could probably wash some of the stink of the beer industry off of you before you moved on. So, I'm not bitter at all at the beer industry. So, I, I I really do love it. Our choice is to open these breweries and give it a run, and the business side of running a brewery. You know, no, none of us knew. I mean, obviously, you have this podcast because you, you know, you're in the same position. Like, wow, we really messed up here and here. And so, I, that's part of why I'm doing this is to hey, educate yourself a lot more on what it's like to open a brewery yeah. and run one. So far, it sounds like people are actually listening. So that's at least a win in, in that sense. So that, even if negative reviews, they're <laughs> they're listening. I don't care about that. So. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the story you shared obviously has a ton of value. There's, there were, like I said, some things in there that we haven't really touched on before. And I'm glad that I was able to, to share it with you. And I'm glad you had the time to share it. And I do truly wish you the best. I hope that someone comes in and just offers you a couple hundred grand more than the, the debt that you have and that things move forward for you. But, um, you know, other than that, any, any parting words you want to leave everybody with? Yeah. And I said this on the DCBeer.com podcast. Go check in right now on your favorite breweries. See how they're doing. You don't have to ask them, hey, how are you guys doing or you're failing? Because that's a very personal question. But just check in on them and go. Like, go now. Make sure, you know. The amount of sadness that I saw people having on us closing felt there was people who were way more upset and sad than I was. Mm. And that's, we really created something great for these people. So go check on a place you really love that's been created that you enjoy yeah check out on them give them business and do what you can to hope that hope they survive because there's a lot more uh, there's a lot of great people out there more than there are bad people in our industry so i agree there are a few bad ones but uh, most of them are pretty great that's a great message so if you heard it from richard go check on your favorite brewery with your credit card in hand thanks for helping everybody i appreciate it today yeah happy to Thanks for hanging in, dudes and dudettes. I truly hope this podcast adds value to your life as much as to your career. I hope it's opened your eyes, your heart, and even your mind. I hope you're readied and steadied for the rocky road that lies ahead of you. By now you know you're going to need some salt in your margarita if you hope to have enough grit to finish the round. So here's the double salting the rim of life, motherfuckers. I mentioned earlier the book I wrote in 2019 and revised the hell out of 2020. It is 55,000 words available on Amazon and a fantastic way to support the show. You can also share your favorite episode with friends and foes. That shit helps way more than you might know. Plus, every purchase you make from one of my sponsors directly helps keep me in business. And if you're feeling really squirrely, there's a link in the show notes for how to support the show with a direct donation. But most of all, I appreciate your support by coming back, learning something valuable, and spreading the message to the rest of the world. You are part of the craft beer revolution that will keep the business part strong enough to keep the fermentation part flowing. And I, for one, love the absolute fuck out of each of you. So thanks for being a listener, and I look forward to meeting you all one day. Free play. Media. Media.